This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by bellacatering.com.au. Guys, Bella Catering, one of Sydney's best catering companies, pivoted to home delivery during the time of COVID, just like many people they've had to do that. And look, we love them and we think that they do absolutely incredible food, especially at their catered events. They are delectable, but you can get that at home. Why would you even bother cooking for a bunch of people at your house and the reducing number at this stage as we're on the precipice of a potential second wave? Don't bother cooking. Just order it with Bella Catering. If you're in the greater Sydney area, they'll deliver it to your house and then done. The stress of eating is sorted. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you, Maria. We love Bella Catering. Thank you for sponsoring all the President's Minutes throughout this entire thing. Guys, thank you for listening to all the President's Minutes and all of the One Heat Minute production shows. We have a banger of a week for you this week. Huge guests, huge minutes. Let's get to it. soon learned that some of the campaign money raised by the re-election committee had found its way into the hands of the Watergate burglars. The key was the money and finding these people who controlled these funds and figuring out what they did with the money. By now, Woodward and Bernstein weren't the only ones following the money. The FBI was on the trail, and more importantly, a grand jury had begun its own investigation. And everyone wanted to talk to Hugh Sloan. The cash that financed the Watergate break-in, five men had control of the fund. Bernstein and Woodward showed up, and they uh, first recommended that the right thing to do was tell them the whole story so they can print it. We're not asking you to be our source. All we're asking you to do is confirm. I'm not your source on Haldeman. I mean, they were very engaging people. A little bit the good guy, bad guy, cop kind of routine. What do you do? Right, say, say we wrote a story that said that Haldeman was the fifth name to control the fund. Right. Would we be in any trouble? Would we be wrong? And they had established through conversations and other means that I would have acknowledged basically five people as having the authority to tell me to dispense funds. And uh, one of them was Bob Haldeman. Let me put it this way. I would have no problems if you wrote a story like that. If you wouldn't? No. That's it? Okay. Yeah. If you are looking for a phrase that defined what the execution of Watergate was, it was a Haldeman operation. It was driven by Nixon, but operationally, it was Haldeman doing it. On October 25th, two weeks before the election, the Post front page headline pointed the finger at the number one man in the president's inner circle, Bob Haldeman. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to all the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Coward. It is episode 83 of Alan J. Pakula's and Robert Redford's 1976 masterpiece, All the President's Men. Today, I am joined by another great guest who I have handpicked from the buffet of incredible, smart, and funny, and insightful film people that I was blessed to join on the episode of Cinephile Game Night where Scripps Gone Wild versus uh, um, film stage and one heat minute. I'm very honored to be a part of that team. And I'm joined by one of the many great guests on that, uh, on that whole exercise. He is also a podcaster himself. He is the Vidiots trivia host, um, the charity that we donated a uh, great mad Max Fury road poster to, and, uh, and a great blade runner poster that I, I donated myself and watched Corey Everett cry when he realized that it wasn't going to be his. It was just a wonderful moment. Um, my guest today has his own podcast, which as you're listening to now, and I'm going to be doing this as this episode is being posted, is dropping part two of an incredible Western trilogy, the Screen Draft Show, uh, where they have basically chosen the greatest Western films from, I'm going to say, 1964 to 1992. So if you know anything about Westerns, you've literally traveled through the entire peak of revisionist Westerns all the way up until unforfreaking-given, and it sounds like an unforgiving task ahead. One thing about this particular guest, before I finally introduce him, is that he said, retweeting anything that mentions broadcast news, and I thought, look, then this might be a show that this man could have a lot of fun on. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my distinct pleasure to welcome Clay Keller to the show. Clay, thank you so much for doing all the President's Minutes. 
Oh my goodness, Blake! Thank you, uh, thank you for for hosting me here on, on this. Yes, I know your 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 pitch to me on on, on Twitter was it, it's not broadcast news, but <laughs> well, um, this is part of you know part of doing a show like this. You end up consuming an unbelievable amount, like much like you've just done with this epic westerns trilogy, and you guys do on screen drafts is like just going through journalism movies through the eras. You know, you, you can um, and in around the 76 era, there's some really good ones. You know, broadcast news is obviously one of them. You things like network and then obviously all the president's men um, and even parallax as a precursor, which is kind of a journalistic movie, but broadly more of a paranoia movie. And, and you sort of end up having these, that's why all the president's men I find is like one of my favorite films just in general, but a great movie for this because it intersects with so many of those genres. So like broadcast news is one of those, yeah. like, Oh, if you're a fan of broadcast news, you're very likely a fan in some way, shape, or form of all the president's men. So this would be a show that yes. I have fun talking about. Two great, fantastic um, newsroom movies, which yeah. is a, a, there are few better settings uh, for uh, drama for acting than a big, wide open newsroom. Yes, uh, I just I love the energy in in a newsroom. It is interesting you point out that the mid seventies and then into the eighties, um, there were a lot of great. You got the the paper as well. Yep, um, a lot of great uh, journalism movies, uh, and I think it is because maybe starting with this movie, um, and this is just pure conjecture. Uh, the, this movie and this this historical occurrence um, really woke up the American people, such as it is, and now we've we've mostly gone back to sleep. But woke up the American people to the the importance of you know the free press. The free press was obviously one of the core tenets of the founding of the country. Is like this is an unofficial you know check on on the government, um, and then with this with with. Uh, with Watergate and everything that un that uh, unfolded that led in, you know, the resignation of a president. Um, it's like, oh shit, not only is uh, this, you know, uh, incredibly important uh, uh, and very relevant, and then that's, this movie proved it could also be dramatic. And then as we get into the 80s, you get CNN, television news, uh, and all of that. And then the news became not only just important, but also a primary source of entertainment. And I think there's just been a lot of news stuff since this movie um, kind of kicked it off. You look before this and it's, there's a couple of, of really, you know, incisive movies like Ace in the Hole uh, or, or whatever, but I feel like it was mostly, mostly comedic stuff. And this one, you get some real, this is, he kicks off an era of really juicy uh, drama, important, important things happening in the, in the newsroom. Yeah, it feels like there's a bit more dimension in the movies that ma are made around this era than, you know, I think a foreign correspondent, Hitchcock's almost like essentially swapping out this swashbuckling detective with a journalist. And, and right. then uh, there's kind of like, you know, you know, speaking in like scripting terms, the inciting incident that, is, that challenges the whole genre is like the 24-hour news cycle. So the whole, you know, the, if, you, if you watch the incredible documentary like OJ made in America and how, you know, it, it becomes like car chasing. And then later on you get great films like Nightcrawler, which is, which, yeah. which talks about that. Like is embedded in that genre has a little bit more of a, you know, taxi driver esque uh, uh, flair than, than say a, a traditional journalism movie, but it's got that challenging moment where, it just becomes an entertainment news cycle and it just becomes like magazine opinion. And it sort of starts to strip the facts become just the introductory segment. And then it dives into like just relentless opinion from the same voices and the same pundits. So there's no, there's no richness of the discourse. It just becomes like, yeah. how do I, how do I, artfully repeat myself and so that's what challenges it and you see Sorkin try and go head to head with it in the newsroom but it is a it is a genre that's so great and there's so many good journalism movies some of them get you know some of them have good elements and some of them are really bad that I, I really think State of Play is a really interesting one with Russell Crowe and Rachel McAdam mm -hmm. a nice bridging one because it's kind of uh, old school newsroom versus new school but other than that it seems to go into like cautionary tales you know, like a um, shattered glass and, you know, there's not just like right. that boots on the ground, relent, relentless, like just enduring, must keep going, you know, uh, sort of inspirational stuff that lionizes them, which this movie, you know, definitely has, is yeah. definitely doing. Like that's, that's what Rob Redford wanted to do with it.
Yeah, well, and just that general sense of right and wrong and morals. And it, it is, it is what well, I'm sure every single guest you've had on uh, up to now, the previous 82 guests have all uh, re- re- remarked on how just deeply sad it is <laughs> to, to, watch this, to watch this movie and watch not, not only like, you know, uh, 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 it, it is wild that there was a time when the, the journalism... Um, side of things the newspapers the journalists that are supposed to uh to be that check to keep washington honest um could get something done could affect change uh and still play by the rules yes um and and now it is just so i mean everything that they had to uncover in this movie it's equivalent today is just happening un unhidden it's just out in the open uh, and i think that's part of why nothing can get done is because when you just act like everything is normal then you can't get people excited about it it's not it's not a conspiracy anymore it's not it's not juicy it's not it's not it's not evil if you just get used to it but um there's just a different there the, the, today the well, uh, politicians um and in in particular one of the two major american <laughs> political parties are not playing with the same rule book as not journalists at all and i think in this movie back back then and and i'll do my little soapbox rant and then we can actually talk about whatever it is you wanted to talk about was but back back then um at least you know the republicans are still portrayed as the antagonists but at least they were portrayed as were, you know, historically were, um, they're all playing on the same field. And they are trying to do, uh, you know, shitty, secret, illegal things. But at least when the, when the journalists can, they can still work with both their, their, their code. Ben Bradley can still say, we need a fourth uh, source. We need to be sure on our facts. And they can still crack the story and there's still this veneer of politeness where it's like people i it's it was it's it's sad how quaint it was watching this and they um they catch somebody in a in a thing and they're like oh but this isn't what you said and then the the republican uh, or the person the committee to reelect at least like attempts to try and like come up with a respectable lie. <laughs> like, oh, you know, actually this, this, and this. Now today you'd just be like, oh, no, I didn't say that. And they're like, yeah, I did. I have it on the record. They're like, no, nah, I never said it. Like at least, at least they had the, the, the fucking uh, common decency to lie eloquently back then. And now we don't even have that. Now it's just, it, this, the state of affairs today is just so, so, so sad. So the, the, it's a slight tangent and I love that we're starting off on a tangent, but it's, um, the, uh, you know, so, someone tweeted a great tweet and it's, it's on my timeline, uh, you know, a few days ago, if you guys want to check it out, it says the onion never misses. And so on the onion.com, the question was, what is QAnon? And the answer that the onion answered was a conspiracy theory that posits world leaders are secretly evil rather than openly. So <laughs> and, and I'm like the onion does never miss. And that's, that is what is, that's what brings me back to this movie so much is that there is a morality at its center. And I, and I don't think that this is lost in actual people. What I think though, is the scrutiny with which the facts happen. And there are different political bents in papers for, you know, throughout the ages, you know, you can hear it's, it's, it's almost a, it's almost a lie agreed upon, you know, to use a dead word, uh, to use a deadwood phrase. It's almost a lie agreed upon that news can be completely objective because there are different political people and they have, that have that but what is at least a what what used to be an entry to the dance was we were going to state all of the facts and then let you decide there might be a little bit of spin but like the facts are what we lead excuse me the facts are what we lead with yeah now if you're back then and you've got all these different papers stating the facts that are verifiable that something is bad there's not necessarily a completely other news lens or a news arm or whatever that are all trying to counter those facts or say that they're all lies and running interference for you. That's the challenge that I see. And a few people have mentioned on the show is just like, you seem to have the news media that go from sort of centrist to left. And then you've got like the, the, the Fox arm of the news where people are like, it's like the worst thing that's ever happened in American history is Fox news. Some people like there's worst things happening to our country is Fox news because there seems to be like facts. And then for like, five hours or unrelenting 24 hour news cycle. They'll have people saying that the things that 
these journalists have uncovered and sourced and fact-checked, isn't that important? And discounting right. them. And what is a relief in this movie is that the, uh, the burden of that, like discounting things, pushing back, was on the actual political party who was accused of lying, right. accused of doing something wrong. And so then yeah. when there's a chorus of news media, the early television and newspapers just going, this is bad. Like, this is wrong. This is, you know, money has been stolen. These people stole this thing and the burden is on them to do it. There, there is that shame, that natural, like, well, I have to be decent and I have to not lie because right. if I get investigated, I'm perjuring myself on national media. Whereas now it's like, I don't answer. I don't have to answer the questions. I can lie. There can be a newspaper that says, "There's, you know, since pr- Trump started the presidency, he's stated in public press conferences something like twenty thousand factual inaccuracies or whatever it is." It's just like, yeah, that, no, it's 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 uh, the, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, one first of all, I'd like to uh, thank I'd like to thank your country for the Murdochs first oh, of all. Um, one of our, gr- I mean. <laughs> One wow. of your great exports. <laughs> God, the great and and what what I would just say, Clay, is we did export it, but but Murdoch's stranglehold in Australia is like so. Is it even worse in Australia? Hundred yeah, percent. I think eighty percent of the news media in Australia is controlled by the Murdoch presses. So 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 much so, and also had such political influence that our libel laws are insane. So. Um, there was a Me Too, you know, the Me Too movement in Australia basically had one big significant individual that was, um, was charged or was, charges were leveled at them was Jeffrey, the actor Jeffrey Rush. He went to court about it. I think I can factually say he was accused of that. Um, and then in the process of drumming people up um, uh, there, the court proved against the accusers. They, they sided with Jeffrey Rush. And then Jeffrey Ross went and proceeded to sue one of the newspapers in the country about that. So the libel laws here that Murdoch has influenced are even more crazy. It's actually one of the inspirational things for me is because I see great journalists in Australia doing great work, but like we could never level an accusation in a paper ever like you could do in mm. all this man. Those guys would just lose their job instantaneously. Might go to jail. Like almost, almost instantaneously. So he's, he's left a, an interesting stain on, on, uh, on, Basically the world. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. Well, hopefully, I mean, look, the, the only comfort that you can take in that is, is, you know, and I always like to, to play the thought experiment of, you know, in 75 years, what will the history books say about these people? And that's all assuming that, you know, history still exists and books still exist and education still exists in 75 years. But it's, it's funny how I think, I think a lot of people who, and I, I don't know how political we want to get on this show. This is a very political movie, I guess. Um, you're, you're allowed. I think some of our guests have been, you know, some of our guests say that, you know, I'm not sure how political you want to get, like usually in the preamble. So I'm glad you're actually doing here. It's like, this is a show it's, that can be as political or not. Because, you know, I think with a film like this, it's almost impossible to, to not engage with the politics of that time and contemporary politics too, just because, you know, there, the lines of decency like, you know, you end up arguing, you end up having political debates with people in the street, like two news media outlets arguing. You're like, I'm a person. You're a person. Yeah. We want education. Yeah. We want our freedom. We want a press to keep people in check. Like when people do really nasty shit and they don't want to say it and there's a whistleblower, we want that out because it's in our best interest to, to keep, to be, for people to be kept in check. We want to have healthcare. We want to have education. Like there's some universalities of like, especially now in this time of COVID, like of what people actually want and desire. Um, and I think that, you know, people, it's, it's the different media outlets don't give a shit how combative they make you feel or with your no. fellows. They just want people on their side. No, exactly. And, and I mean, honestly, you, you touched on this um, a few minutes ago, but, you know, the news used to, you know, it, it, it used to be a lot less complicated to admire the news for trying to be, nonpartisan for uh, just presenting the facts and letting you decide. Um, of course, Fox News, as you said, has just fucked. Ever- oh, we're good to we're good yeah. to yes. curse, particularly yeah. in context of speaking about Fox News. I would hope that would be encouraged. But it's <laughs> Fox News has come and just fucked everything and just poisoned people's brains. But you know, I had to stop listening to NPR, which is the um, national public radio in in the states, because they will present the absolutely inane and evil things 
objectively evil things that the current administration is doing with that same like, and this is NPR. President Trump today said in that, and I'm like, when you present it like that, it normalizes it. Like, this is different. This is not, this is not 1950 when the Democrats and the Republicans were essentially the same thing minus some economic policy. Like this is one side of, of politics has spent since 1974, the last 40 years, stripping anyone who has a moral core from their ranks so that this can never happen again. That's where you get the, there's only a few cracks in this story and all the president's men, they get a few people who were part of the power structure who had a change of heart, who who were not craven and evil, who were caught up and said, wait a minute, what we're doing is wrong. And because there were a handful of those people they were able to get, they were able to crack this case and break the story. And the Republicans said, never again. We are, <laughs> we are, we are, we are going to call anyone who has a heart from our ranks and everyone's going to fall in lockstep and we are going to be this like impenetrable wall of evil now going forward. <laughs> um, and that is, and that's, and that is how what's happened. And that is how uh, they are able to just, uh, uh, dismantle the mail now i you know uh, it's, a, I, it's a direct line this this woodward and bernstein spooked them so bad uh that, that this bernstein, is where we're at today Hal bernstein still spooking still out there ca- causing a ruckus bless his heart um both of them actually look yeah it's it's that's what i can't uh that's what i struggle to reconcile with is uh like I don't know whether it's like humanity's impulse to be on a team, whether you're on a team or that inherent tribalism or whatever it is that, that makes it like that. Because I think that, I think that Fox news, I know like as crazy as it sounds, that they could also be an incredibly powerful entity because they are essentially a propaganda medium, but they could be an incredibly powerful entity to be like on the opposite. So for example, Let's just, you know, oh, this is another thought experiment you talk about, you know, in 75 years, how they're going to be remembered. But I, I wonder, like, if they didn't really like Trump and there was another candidate, how could they have made him look like a, an idiot? Like, how, what, what's, no. so, what's so nice about stroking his ego? Because that's what he's doing. Like, he's stroking yeah. his ego. I heard, you know, there's a very, I, I, a guy that I think is one of the funniest comedians going around now just purely because of how ridiculous and fun he is in this crazy time is an American by the name of Tim Dillon. And Tim Dillon just said, like, you know, he describes Trump as like the world's greatest grifter, like people who are like con men and like snake oil salesmen, as people call them. Like, he's like, he's the best one of those guys, no preparation, nothing. He just walks in the room and like, he's, he's, he's bullshitted his way to president. Like it's just yeah. like he's bullshit about all the time. And so yeah. I wonder what, what the incentive, I know the power, like obviously they're power hungry and they want to displace that, but it's like surely all of the lack of integrity you've had to say for so many years, like promoting this guy. And then in the, yeah. as, as that, I wonder if they ever go home at night and go, you know, a few years ago we were on Romney. And like by the grand, in the grand scheme of things, yes, he's a douchebag, but like, is he this guy? Is he this guy that's bringing you guys to the brink of the <laughs> war? Like, what are we doing? I don't know. I, I, I was no fan, obviously, of, of Mitt Romney. I, but, you know, certainly in the last few years, he has proven himself to be. Um, we were no fans of Nixon at the start of this show, Clay. <laughs> and I think every guest in you know, all previous 82 and yourself are like, you know, Nixon wasn't that bad. You know, it just wasn't that bad. <laughs> but that's the thing. It's going all the way back. You know, um, every, every, everything that, that is just confounding and baffling to us today about the Republican Party and the conservative movement has seeds going back to this, going back to, to before this. And one of the big things is never admitting you're wrong. Yes. Never giving an inch, never admitting that you are wrong, never admitting that you made a mistake. We are always right, no matter what it is. So even though some of them, you know what, some of them may have, um, you know, convinced themselves of some things. I'm sure some of them, you know, the, the other people in the program party go home and are like, oh boy, all right, we've got, you know, however many more days we have to deal with, with this guy. But the thing is, they're never going to come out and say, we were wrong. No. Because then, then the whole then the whole thing crumbles. It's much easier to um, to play to 
the easiest convinced demographic of things uh, and who will also just, you know, go along with you, do the mental gymnastics to be like, we are never wrong. Uh, and, uh, and then, you know, when it, when it comes out and when in, you know, in 75 years, when Trump is, uh, you know, half of the history books and is, you know, down as the worst president <laughs> ever, uh, then, you know, then they'll be like, oh yeah, he was, yeah, he was bad. But it's, 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 you know, it's, it's the same thing with the environment. You know, they, they, they don't think past when they go into the ground, anything beyond that doesn't matter. Uh, but, uh, you know, I don't know. That's, that's, I, I, I could, uh, I could dig down on, on this no, all no. day long. Do you, I look, if we go another three minutes, I'm going to start talking about how the root of all evil is Christianity. So you stop me at some, stop me at some point. I, I think, right. I think that there's so much there that is exactly what I love talking about this movie about, because that's the, you try and chart and you try and examine and you try and wonder like what is the point where no one could be no one could receive humility like no one could be humble because like you know humbled uh, you know humbled in defeat you know even nick even nixon as who is now being reappraised you know in the context of contemporary times as like a nice guy he wasn't like let's just put it right out on front street i want to make that clear we joke a lot on this show but um nick's part of a political career and part of like storytelling and part of humanity is like adversity. You know, Nixon was like, Oh, I yeah. lost to Kennedy. And then I came back and now Republican had a power. It's like, it feels like no one can ever take an L like no one can ever take a loss. You've got to be yeah. undefeated. And it's like, it's just not, it, I don't, you I can don't never I, change your mind. There's a, the, the, in a, in America, um, changing your mind is portrayed as weakness. Yeah, which is has always been mind-boggling to me. It's you know, it, it is you. You know, it's just one of the you know things that a human being should be able to do is uh, receive new information and then act accordingly. And instead, <laughs> instead, you know, through you know the you know, I mean, it's really in the core of America you know, identity. But this has certainly been perpetuated by the conservative movement and and you know the dismantling of public ed the quality of public education um and uh and also honestly you know i'll say it uh christianity particularly evangelical christianity is that there is um honor in never changing your mind yeah the best thing you can do uh as a human being is to uh look i i grew up an evangelical christian um i saw it from the inside and i i <laughs> I know every bit of how the disgusting uh, incestual intertwining is between that and the Republican party. But it is the whole thing there is, is there's nothing better you can do than to just ignore what you see and believe what we tell you. <laughs> That's that, that is, that is, there's a direct correlation. People who spend their whole lives using their Sunday to go to church and be told by an old white man uh, that you should just believe what I'm saying uh, because there's nothing better than faith. Uh, those are the people who then will come out and vote for lunatics like Lindsey Graham. I mean, that is, there's a, a direct line. It's, it's so funny that you say that. It's like, there's a muscle that you've practiced, which yeah. I'm going to repeat what you just said, which is ignore what you see, believe what I say, because that's, yeah. that's the actual challenge. And I think the extremity, even on the left, does the same thing. They like, they will ex go so extremely like uh, Republicans will fearmonger, for example, in the recent black lives matter movement, they'll fearmonger and say, these are all violent protests. And then the left will come out and say, none of them were violent. And the fact is like, some of them had people who were doing dumb, violent shit. Like there was 80% that was fine, but there was an idiot yeah. going and setting fire to something. So there was some violence. Well, and that's, I, and that's the, and that's the other, I mean, that's, I don't know if it's a sad thing, but that's the other thing is that, is that you know the side of the angels as much as it is does not have the luxury of playing by the playbook anymore because yeah. because the other side threw it out three decades ago yes. um and I'll, I'll you know go. that's again never uh, again never again are we are we going to let this nixon shit happen uh. oh my god look i i'm not nostalgic for nixon i am nostalgic for uh for the events of this film. Yeah. I will say that. 
No, I, 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 watching this, I'm, I'm nostalgic for even in the context of my country, particularly. And I think it, it actually fleshes itself out a lot more in, um, in, in race relations in, in our country, which is that people are fearful of the ground that they have. And especially on the the conservative bent of our parties of like, just agreeing with the race relations that have happened in this country. Like, you know, there's kind of been this, whether it's implicit, but it's like this implicit assimilation. So like, you know, you know, there's the English whites who came and colonized this place and the, you know, the British whites, they come in and colonize and there's white Europeans that come here. And then through a whole bunch of like international wars and civil conflicts, you had a flood of Greek and Italian and Maltese, like my family migrants that came over during world war two and created, a, you know, and, and then there was sort of a warring factions between the, you know, these new sort of non-English speaking Europeans and then the white Europeans who were here. And there was like race conflict, obviously forgetting our first nations people and putting them to the side all the time. And then the next wave is like poor Lebanese people who there was, had their own civil war and they came over in the seventies. And then in the nineties, the Sudanese people that come over and you just watch all this, like this, like things of assimilation, these stages of assimilation. It's just like, we've watched all these people be ingratiated into our society, Asian people coming over consistently since the gold rush. And it's like in race relations in contemporary Australia, this is one thing that like people are just a bit brain dead on. It's like, you can say you're, it's not your fault, but you can say that we came in here or the people who originally created this country came in here. They killed a whole bunch of indigenous people. Some of those indigenous people want rights. We don't need to set, we don't need to, we can do small things in our community overall that aren't going to impact the entire country, but are going to definitely help indigenous people thrive, help address that as part of our culture and not just have a cultural blind spot that says, Oh, this mysterious white European Anglo Christian bunch just miraculously materialized on this continent in around, you know, like a couple hundred years ago. And uh, yeah, they like, we hear the whole time. Like the, yeah. you know, our history started in, uh, you know, when people started wearing sluggers, uh, dick stickers, uh, budgie smugglers, I think as they're called in the States and like, uh, you know, life-saving on Bondi beach. That was the beginning of our culture, not indigenous culture. Point of order. Uh, Blake, what was the phrase you said you think we say in the United States? Budgie smugglers. Budgie smugglers. Yeah. What do you, what do you call like uh what do you call like uh bathing? I, 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 I will say I've never, I've never heard Budgie smuggler of a budgie. I don't know what a budgie is. A little bird, a little bird, like a little parrot. Oh, so we say budgie smugglers. You know, it's guys who wear like little uh, tight uh, bathing suits, like European bathing suits. You know, though it's not like board shorts <laughs> or anything like that. That's our nickname for that. Um, oh, interesting. I don't know if we've got a colorful nickname for that. I think we just refer to the to the garment itself, the speedo. I'm sure there is a colorful. There's, there's, there's a colorful there's, saying for there's it. There's got to be. Somewhere in Florida, someone has Smuggler, it. I think, is part of it, but I, I, <laughs> it's not a small bird, although that that creates a, a delightful mental image. <laughs> but, yeah, it's, I, I find it that when it's anything about progress, a country, like, shrivels like a, like a raisin, like or a prune. Like, yeah. it just goes, we, we can't have any stop. This is not going to affect your life in a, in a fundamental way. But what it is going to do is affect and you know, actively promote people who are part of our culture and that embrace is part of how we grow. Like I just don't, people people can't even accept the mistakes of the people who made the country. It's like, it's not your fault, like directly, but you benefit from what they did. So it, addressing it, you don't have to say that you did it. Your, your ancestors might've done it. You're not complicit necessarily, but you are complicit if you shrivel up and don't do anything about it. And it's just like, that's what I, and you know, you talked about the environment before. It's the same sorts of thing. And I, I just wonder if like, if you can just acknowledge, like just have an acknowledgement moment because there's no growth without acknowledgement. Yeah. Well, and that's, and growth seems to be what, uh, you know, the conservatives uh, are against. I mean, that, and that it goes all the way back to the thing I said way earlier about history books is it, it is wild to me that anybody can learn their history. And I, and honestly, and this is why, Again, in my country, Republicans uh, are all about defunding education um, to keep the electorate ignorant. But anybody can look at history books and at every single point, the, the, the progressive movement moved history forward and the conservative movement is, is the bad guy. Like at, at every <laughs> single point. I don't know how you can, 
how do you look at, at, at history and, and be like, okay, yeah, but, but this time, but this time we're going to be proven right for the first time ever. Like, I just don't, it's, it's so, it's so uh, ahistoric. Um, and, and, and this country that I live in is so, and it sounds like perhaps similar to your country is so fiercely anti-intellectual now, you know, uh, that it's again was so refreshing revisiting this movie and watching um cleverness and dogged uh uh effort uh, and intelligence portrayed in a in a heroic fashion <laughs> in a heroic exactly yeah. I, I i can't agree with you more and let's let's dive into watching two people trying to figure this thing out it's a wonderful scene in the 83rd minute that Clay and I are going to talk about. For context, uh, if this is your first time listening, welcome to the show. We go through a minute of the film and then sort of use it as a portal, as we already have done, to discuss many of the themes of the film. But this moment is a wonderful coda to the brilliant bookkeeper scene. Bernstein has rushed back to the apartment of his partner, Bob. Yeah. But late at night, he's been at this bookkeeper's house for you know eight minutes in the film, but six hours in the in the time of the world to gather all this information. He's got notes in his scroll through his notepad that he's taken down. He's got notes on napkins, notes on matchbooks. He's pumped up on coffee, and it's these two guys unpacking what they have, and and really what they have is a, a whole layering of malfeasance that is going on within um, uh, the so aptly. Uh, titled Creep, which is the committee to re-elect the president and the bookkeeper, the real lady, the hero, Judith Hoback Miller, um, but in this film, also a hero played by the incredible Academy Award-nominated uh, Jane Alexander. So these guys are debriefing and unpacking that. Let's see the manic, beautiful, and musical energy of this scene together. Clay and I are going to watch along now. You guys are going to listen along, and then we're going to come back and talk about it. What that money was used for. Boy, that money was paranoid. At one point, I, I suddenly wondered how high up this thing goes, and her paranoia finally got to me. I thought what we had was so hot that any minute CBS or NBC are going to come in through the windows and take the story. We're both paranoid. She's afraid of John Mitchell, and you're afraid of Walter Cronkite. Right. Can we go back to what she said? Yeah. Here. LP and M. What do you mean? LP and M. If you don't give me initials. Initials? Yeah, the initials are the name of the men that worked on there. Mitchell. LP and M. You couldn't get the names? If I could have gotten the names, I would have gotten the names. I'm with the woman trying to get anything I can. She said L, P, and M. That's all she would give me are the people who worked under Mitchell. She says something about Mitchell. She hates him. She said that? Here, she said John Mitchell. If you guys could get John Mitchell, that would be beautiful. Wait a minute. What's this here? What are you reading about Sloan? Sloan. Sloan was the treasurer of the committee to realize. his wife did what? His wife is pregnant, and she made Sloan quit because apparently he no longer wanted to be a part of it. We've got to go see Sloan. Okay, make a note of it. Bravo. She's scared of John Mitchell and you're scared of Walter Cronkite. What a freaking great scene. Great scene. I, it's a spectacular um, actor scene. I would wager that that was one of the most fun things to shoot Ugh. in the movie because it's so simple setup wise. I mean, the whole thing is one camera setup that just pans back and forth. There is a cut in the middle of it, but it seems like it's from the same angle. So I feel like it, it, it was still probably shot I think fairly I, con contiguously. Yeah, I think it was. Um, I, I think it was the same setup, but I think what what they were doing, Robert L. Wolf, the editor, and Pakula were doing, is just like main. Excuse me, maintaining the tempo. So, like, there's a the, some of those hard cuts are just around. Let's speed this up. Like, let's yeah. keep this going. And so those th those things for me are. Um, it's it's one of those subtle cuts, but it's it's helping with the manic energy because they can't yeah. get as they can't get back to Bernstein fast enough to get the beginning of the line that then pans back. It's always like, it almost right. feels like it starts on the right of screen. Like if you're looking at the screen, it starts on the right of screen and then it whips back to Redford, who is the still one at the typewriter. Right. And it's, and then it's it back. But then the cut happens when, yeah, cause we're following the energy of Bernstein as yeah. he's trying to get it all out. This is a very orgasmic release <laughs> <laughs> after the long quiet buildup of the previous scene now he just get he had to play quiet for eight minutes and now he just gets to rant and like walk around a room and play with props and this is my favorite one of my favorite conversations on this show because we've gone from christianity we've gone to the conservatism through history now we've gone through some sort of tantric sex metaphor into this oh yeah thing it's oh absolutely <laughs> it's beautiful <laughs> um 
and 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 you can tell they're having so much fun. But yeah, it's following him in the kind of the panning uh, one or and then on the cut, it does go back to Woodward. It is when he introduces that first like question that rockets the conversation forward uh, to to another stage, uh, which is great. Like I said, I love. Um, you know, uh, I'm not professionally an actor, but I've done some acting, and I'm just like, I bet these guys had a fucking blast with this scene. Yeah. There's comedy, and it's there's going to be a few episodes about this scene. This is about a two or three minute yeah, scene, I yeah. believe. Actually, my favorite part of the scene, uh, someone else will get to talk about in the future when he throws a throws him the cookie, and he says, "I don't want the cookie," and puts it aside. <laughs> um, but uh, they're just they're they're going back and forth. They're both just going to town on props. He's got a cigarette there. This is the first time they get to really like do some ranting and yelling and it's, there's ebbs and flows. And uh, it's, this is, it's, it, I love this scene. This honestly, this is one of my favorite scenes uh, in the movie. It's, you know, what's so funny clay is that, you know, I don't know if you have this experience too, but like, I think about it as almost like with a great album, like sometimes on a great album, you, there's immediately your favorite song. And you just listen to it, like you'll find yourself listening to it. In the old days, it was like listening to a CD or a record or even a freaking cassette. But like now you do it, you know, virtually and digitally and you can shuffle through it and things like that and put it on a playlist so you can isolate it. But I love listening to albums. And what eventually happens to me, and I don't know if it happens to you, is that like the sometimes the the song that goes before my favorite song and the song that happens after my favorite song also then become some of my favorite songs on that album. I don't know what it is, yeah. but something like the relationship to how like really great records, like have like a flow and have a story that they're telling. And yeah. so for me, like if I was telling people about one of my favorite scenes of the movie, this is definitely one of my top ones. And I, I obviously found probably the top scene of the movie for me is, is, is the bookkeeper scene, but what is happening now and it, it happens so much is the relationship of the bookkeeper scene. Almost that scene is elevated by this scene because of how quiet it is and how deliberate it is and how slow it is and how much it burns. And then this, like you said, is a release. It comes in hot, 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 fast, fast, fast. Golden script firing. They're firing. The camera's whipping around. Their energy is so wonderful. They actually are getting some of this down. It actually is meaningful. They can see right. the holes in it. And then the beauty in, in the upcoming moments, and it's, in, it's actually in the cookies thing you're talking about, but it's like the way that they start, okay, no, no, this is how we're going to prioritize. I'm going to say this, I'm going to say that it's this right. person and then I'm going to bury it. And then watching yeah. them begin how they strategize to exact more information out of something. Like I, I'm starting to love this scene more and more for the rhythm, like just the relief of the rhythm, as you said, it's like, it is yeah. a release moment, but it's actually relieving for us because we've been, if you're watching this movie and, and the way that I do this process that I tell everyone is like, I won't necessarily watch the whole movie again for every episode, but I like to watch about 20 minutes of the movie before every episode. So I'll watch 10 minutes yeah. before the scene and then I'll go through. And so watching that whole you know sequence before this episode talking to you and then watching how this ascends and how they go then and talk to the bookkeepers some more, it's magic. It's really it's magic. It, 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 yeah, I, 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 the analogy about the album is really interesting because it does, like, look, I, yeah, we made, I, I made the, I guess, perhaps fairly <laughs> obvious, uh, you know, tantric sex uh, analogy myself, but um, it does show one of the fun kind of subtle things about, about the movie and about the two characters in the movie is that the bookkeeper scene is the scene when Bernstein is forcing himself to use some of, I think, the lessons that he has learned from Woodward about not pushing too much, not being bombastic, about coming to people on their level, playing it cool, taking it easy. And he gets through all of that. And then as soon as it's over, he's like, oh my God, blah, 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 And he's back to it. And it's great. And then this scene is, I mean, this scene is the His Girl Friday scene. This is the throwback pattern, nonstop, back and forth, you know, uh, old school newsroom type type scene which um you know you don't thinking fast strategizing it's just someone's on the thing and there's there's a lot of great scenes where people are talking and someone's on a on a typewriter or whatnot in this movie but i think this is the one that feels the most like a you know um billy wilder howard hawks yes feel to it it is and it is a great little scene of it's a very clever movie and there's a lot of uh, a lot of humor kind of just bubbling under the surface throughout it. Obviously the old editors get to have some fun z- z- zingers and whatnot. But I do think this is, this is sort of the comedy scene of the movie. Yeah. And, and the underplayed, like it, it is, it's funny. I saw this, I saw this movie on the big screen. 
early in January this year, it was just by pure coincidence. There was a, a little screening in Australia, like a, a cult, you know, cult classics or whatever. It was just on one, one Monday night and a couple of friends and I went and saw it. And like this scene that, that, you know, you, she's scared of John Mitchell and you're scared of Walter Cron- Cronkite got a huge, yeah. laugh. like it wasn't a completely jam packed audience, but th- this movie has funny beats and a nice relief and like good hearty chuckles that happen out of it. But I love also oh, yeah. that it's like that, that his girl Friday of it is it's just played so low. Like he just lets, he lets that absolute clangor go and the audience is there to laugh, but it just in the flow of the scene, yeah. it's how they are delivering to each other. It's so, it's so wonderful. And it, I, this this particular bit of action happens, I think, just before the minute we're talking about. But like going back to his girl, like can you not imagine Cary Grant pulling bits of paper out from all over his costume, and then a matchbook and some toilet paper, and it's just a it's it's a it's a delightful little it would, it little, would, little bit of comedy. To Cary Grant, it would be an envelope and a kerchief, and yes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's not quite, it wouldn't be quite as uncouth, yeah. but like, that's what's fun about Hoffman is that you totally believe this guy is scribbling on paper. Like he's, he's trying to figure it all out and it's yeah. just, it, it's so, it's so wonderful. But also just, I love that. Um, even though there's like roadblocks that happen in this scene, there's like pauses, there isn't the same, uh, there's still momentum. That's what I love about the ebb and flow of the scene unpacking the dialogue is because in this moment it's like, yeah, she gave me everything. And he's like, cool. What were the names? Oh, she just gave me initials. She just gave you initials. Like, he's like, yeah. you, like he's like, no, but she gave, that's enough. Like we've, we're, and, and it's that convincing yeah. and that constant energy and that wrestle that it's like, oh no, no, P is Porter. She said it. She said, and then like fine. And him actually excavating <laughs> the shit of his uh, note yeah. um, to, to find bits. I love that because it's, it, it, they haven't quite got the slam dunk, but it's just working through and how that conversation. Yeah. Goes. I mean, there is a real mad, yeah. there's a real magic trick in the screenwriting here to, to keep that energy. Well, and that's, and, and it's, and it's an interesting, this is a, you know, obviously goes without saying is a terrific process film about investigative journalism, but it's, it, I've never done any journalism myself, but I, I am, I imagine, you know, when you've done this work that you do get that moment where on its face, this is not, you have not been handed the answer. You don't even really been handed that great of leads, but you can just feel it based on experience. Like, okay, this will lead to this, will lead to this, will lead to this, will lead to this. And then that'll be the thing. And you can just get that burst of, 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 of energy. And especially at this point in the movie, after they have that great montage of everybody shutting them down, the thing is stalled, you know, the audience is starting to get, a little bit excited by the great bookkeeper scene. We're like, oh, this feels like it's going somewhere. And then being have, being able to see the the two characters um, just just exclaim and celebrate that is a great. Um, it's just a great um, flow moment. Yes. Yes. And, Not and an ebb. An ebb is a slowdown. A flow. It's a great <laughs> flow moment. Uh, it's just it's it's a wonderful bit of energy just as as a viewing audience to kind of blast you into that third act. Yeah, and and really, the ebb is the ebb is what Redford is doing in the scene. He's yeah. just keeping an anchor, and the flow is Hoffman. And like, it's it's a that great moment where he gets to really go off. Like he's having so like he's had that so incredibly focused. But I love the you know you've you've done some acting and you're a filmmaker uh, of uh, as well. It's like there's there's uh there's something about just a a small room a really well-designed room. So it feels like it gives you a lot of authenticity and texture. And then two actors that are just bouncing off the goddamn walls. Like there's just something about the energy of the whole scene that it's joyful. Like you turn on the bookkeeper scene and it's tense and you turn this scene on and it's like a smile. Like if, you know, if this was, you know, on on cable or like a streaming service and you'd half watch the movie and you press play on this or you walk past it on like broadcast TV and it was playing in this scene, you'd be like, Oh, I can't stop watching now. Like almost any moment of the movies like that for me, but particularly this scene, because it's just so fun. You're like, Oh yeah, here we go. And what a gift. I mean, what like back to back gifts to an actor that Dustin Hoffman receives. Yeah, like oh my that bookkeeper scene, and then this scene—two absolute, completely different types of of scenes. Two com- being able to play two completely different modes, uh, and he just gets to just to just gets to chew into it. It's just yeah. I mean, this is like I said. I bet when they first read the script, they were both like, "Oh, this scene's gonna be fun. This yeah. is gonna be a good day." I think 
you know, you, you hear about funny, stupid, apoc- and you know, I'm going to just put it out there. Like likely apocryphal tales about the egomaniacal sort of actors of the, you know, the Newman's and the Steve McQueen's who need exactly the same line and equal billing on certain movies. And right, yeah. one of them has to be on the left-hand side of the poster. If their names are on the left, you know, all these stupid things. And there's a little bit of that in this movie, but I honestly can't think as a, as a co-lead of this movie, as both of these guys are, I can't think of reading either part and not being completely blown away with just how much you get to do. Like there's so like, yeah. They might get equal screen time, but there's so much versatility in both of the performances and so much meaty stuff and like, you know, six minute uninterrupted takes on the phones and like, and then him getting this beautiful two shot, like acting off of Jane Alexander in this tiny house. And then this great scene, it just pound for pound. They just have beat, 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 beat. Like it's loaded with incredible scenes. And then I, yeah. you know, I find a great joy in a lot of the scenes that they do together because again, it, you get to really see how, you get to really see the goods from both of these guys, both terrific. I mean, obviously Hoffman is, you know, one of the best of his generation, but I think Redford absolutely underrated um, in that. Oh regard. God. Yeah. Redford's fantastic in this yeah. and in general, yeah. in general, but in this and yeah. So I, I, I like, I like that. I just, I wonder, it's so funny that people are like, Oh, they, you know, they didn't like each other and they bitched about this and one wanted to be first in the credits and one wanted to be on the poster. And it's like, man, just, forget all that for a minute. And just, this is the great thing of like a Scorsese or a Tarantino where they just get all these great actors and they're like, I'll do anything. I want to work with Marty. I want to work with Quentin. I will, I will literally. And, and you know, my favorite filmmaker, Michael Mann, I love his crew and his like roller decks of some of the best character actors in the whole world that come in and literally do like three lines and then they're out like, you know, um, uh, you know, um, and boy, howdy, there's uh, some of those in this movie for sure. Yeah. Um, Ned Beatty, one of the greats. In the I will point movie, out uh, for the network and he's in this movie. Oh yeah. Nobody's in for one, <laughs> one page maybe. Yeah. One pa- page and a half. The guy I did notice uh, since, since we brought up uh, broadcast news, I recognize there's a guy who has one line in broadcast news. Who's like one of the old timers who gets fired in the uh, near the end of the movie in the layoffs. And it's the guy who plays the international desk editor yes in this movie yes um so i mean i've seen broadcast news so so many times that a guy who has like maybe 15 seconds of screen time uh, in that <laughs> film i picked out right away but he's, he's he's great he is a great little scene in this when everybody else leaves the room and they ask him what he thinks about the story and he's yes. got he's got a little paragraph that's 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 really great i mean i had not heard i mean i obviously um you are becoming the preeminent expert on this film throughout the process of doing this podcast. I had not heard any of the stories about onset, um, you know, unfriendliness, but uh, who, who, who knows? I mean, that, that competitive energy certainly could have been harnessed into these characters. Oh, um, absolutely. Uh, and it, and it comes through just being like, you know, they both, you know, there is, there is a natural ambition to journalists, uh, especially to these two guys as written in the movie. Yes. Um, uh, and, and I'm sure both of them, uh, if they were being competitive, were saying, I want to do my part even better than he's doing his part. Now, I don't, I don't, I, I hesitate to, uh, you know, lionize toxic onset behavior <laughs> um, and act like everything, you know, uh, everything can be, can be, uh, can be forgiven that happens on a set if the end product is good. But um, certainly these, these two guys bring an, an incredible amount of authenticity to these characters. Uh, and so some of my f- favorite moments are the authentic feeling ones where they, they play off. And I'm sure that they, I'm not sure. I, it's William Goldman. I, I hate when everybody is like, oh, all the best parts in a movie were improv. And every question to every actor is like, how much did you guys improv? because somehow just saying the words that the writer wrote is not like a good enough story for a Q and a or whatever. <laughs> but I love the asides that seem like fuck ups where he's like, Hey, do any of you guys speak English, uh, Spanish? Like that kind of stuff that Redford can play. And it seems completely um, uh, uh, authentic and completely um, unscripted or spontaneous. Um, that's I love those moments. There's some great moments like that in this movie. They're beautiful, but it's also so great for a director and an editor to go, that's the best take. That's the one. 
Like, because something, you know, something that Alan Pakula himself says in, uh, you know, in a really great interview about this, about this show, it was played as a preamble clip for episode 76. And he just talks about the weird thing of like acting is a job. You have to read the lines. You have to stand in the same spot. You have to move around the room. It has a very functional perspective. And then there's this whole other weird level of spontaneity and alchemy that happens that they have to make it look like they just did it. Like that they are actually that real person doing that. And so many, so many actors, especially when they're starting out, they, they haven't quite found the electric current that goes between those two things to just completely make it feel authentic. And then some guys like these two guys in this movie, they just make it happen. And so then like those little things are gifts. Cause it's like, Oh, he's, he's authentically stuffing it up, but he's staying, he's so good at what he's doing right now. He's staying in character. Um, yeah. And the, there is an apocryphal tale about this movie about, well, about this story is that Mike Nichols, who's directing the graduate had worked with Redford, had been talking, um, you know, talking about the Ben Braddock character um, uh, uh, coming up and, and Redford going, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm this guy, I'm this waspy guy. And, and, and Mike Nichols, you know, said, um, you know, ha, ha, have, have, have you ever had a girl break your heart? And Redford basically was just like, what? Like what? Well, it's, and also, do you realize you look like you're 40? <laughs> and, and so number one, a, he looked like he was 40, but B was yeah. like, he's like, you have never had a girl stand you up. Like that's right. not you. Um, right. And then he went and got Hoffman and obviously Hoffman, you know, I mean, that's one of the movies of his entire career, but I think that I really respect I really respect the game of a great actor that puts himself against another great actor just because they know that the fireworks are going to happen. Like I've got to bring my, I have to bring my a game. And in 1976, 75, these guys are making it. You best believe you've got to bring your a game in a Hoffman movie. Like he's making, he's making everyone look good around him. Um, And he's making it also dwarfing people, even though he's a a guy of diminutive stature, but he's dwarfing them in because he's just electric. So, you know, the, the fact that Redford not only holds his own, but definitely holds equal billing in this scene and in this movie in this way, it's like, man, that's just so good. So good. And Redford's coming off of The Sting, which is a astronomical hit oh, and wins yes. Best Picture. Like he, and I mean, I assume because uh, he is credited with Bakula that he produced it. Yeah, Redford. So he is immediately from the get-go um, leveraging his clout into getting bold, interesting movies made uh, with bold, interesting creators. Um, and just like all, all the respect in the world uh, to Robert Redford. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's a really interesting few years because he goes, Jeremiah Johnson, 72, the candidate, which is ex- excellent, yeah. excellent movie for folks who haven't seen that. That's a great, uh, a, a nice pairing of political movies and, and people on different sides watching Redford there. Um, the way we were, the sting obviously is 1973 Gatsby is 74. He goes the great Waldo pepper. And then he does three days of the condor and then rolls in from three days of the condor to all the president's men. And like, obviously then goes on to so many other great films, but that's such an incredible run of movies all in that little corridor that, um, are really just, you know, they, they seem to endure like a whole bunch of those for, for many, many, many decades after. Uh, Blake, are we going to have uh, 120 minutes of the Condor coming up? No, we are not going to have 120. I, it's so. This is the hard choice, Clay. It's like there are some movies that are so terrific and so great, and then that becomes a conversation. I said in a, in a recent episode is people were like, as soon as I did this, uh, as soon as I finished One Heat Minute, they were like, okay, you're going on to The Insider. Hey, let's do The Insider Minute. And I go, yeah, that's a great movie and absolutely in my mind could stand up to that scrutiny. But then when you say The Insider, it's a journalism movie, even though it's corporate journalism, but it's a journalism movie and its heart and its, and its essence is, it, it is connected to a bunch of movies in my mind. It's connected to All the President's Men. It's connected to Condor. It's connected to right. Conversation. It's connected to Parallax View. It's connected to, you know, uh, um, Blow Out and Blow Up. Um, it's connected to all these films. And so it's like, then you have to actually go, well, because it's connected to those, are any of those more potentially worthy because they've, you know, it's, it's, right. it's carrying the, the torch of a whole bunch of these new Hollywood paranoia journalism films. Um, you know, that's kind of why it's great because it takes that and then it transports it to the nineties and transports it straight into corporate journalism. Um, but, and so, yeah, I, I would like Condor's good, but 
you know, then if you're going pure paranoia and pure like espionage, then the conversation's like, oh man, it's really hard to, it's really hard to know which, what's, what's the next one. Yeah. But three days of the condor has a number in the title. So it makes the pun really easy. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, so, working, I'm working for the hard puns on the future ones. I'm working for increment vice is probably my best one so far. Maybe one, one I mean, hit and then increment vice worked and all the presidents. Been I'll, itself. I'll, I'm going to go ahead and pitch. And this is also using, uh, the, 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 the same pun as the heat thing, but uh, you could do a uh, hot minute based on hot rod <laughs> no it's just hot rod minute hot One. rod minute yes you could do the exact same thing and just hot call rod it hot rod minute yeah hot rod minute that's you could do that um yes and, uh, look you can have me on that one as much as you want. <laughs> uh, well, look, I, I have pitched one to Bilga Ibiri. I, the most recent one I've pitched to Bilga, I said, we should just do um, a, a show called Blake Hat, where I just only a podcast about you and I talking about Black Hat. Um, and he, he nearly said yes. So, um, you know, there's, almost. there's... He almost said yes. He's hoping. <laughs> Clay, this has been an absolute treat talking to you, my friend. Thank you so much for being a part. Oh, yeah. This was a blast. Thank you for having me on. Um, and, and I know... Yeah, I had all these, like, notes written, but... We covered so much. We covered so much. We covered a lot. And I think on screen drafts, I don't know if you guys have done one yet, but I feel like you have to do a, like as in the same one you've done with Westerns, you have to do best journalism draft and like tackle through those different things because there's some great ones might be might be a smaller list than the absolutely gargantuan roster of westerns that you've had to tackle over every decade that cinemas existed but i think you could could unnerve some really good ones that might be a worthy conversation well and that's the the only reason we haven't yet is because i'm still just trying to figure out what the best uh way to parse them down is because i like to like you are no stranger to um stretching out content uh i'm we also like to do that on screen drafts so if you know if we can can get take a sub genre and then sub it and sub it and sub it down a couple of times and get that's where i guess five episodes out of it um so journalism i think is too broad of a blanket unless we did what we call like a mega draft or something that's instead of seven titles is more like 20 but i think we could do you know maybe we'll do like a newspaper movies and then do like a do a television news I feel yeah. like there's a couple of, there's enough films that we could subdivide it a couple of times uh, and, and narrow it down, but certainly. And um, radio. And radio news. Oh, I would love to do a radio draft. There are some great radio movies. Yes, great great radio and even radio news as the subgenre in there as well. Some, you could get some in there. You know, obviously um, the one that probably comes to mind for most people is like Good Morning Vietnam, but you can kind of like, there's, mm. a, fun, there's a fun one that gets in there and you can play around with that. But that, no, uh, I, What's the, isn't there a, 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 an Australian zombie movie set at a radio station? Oh my God. Uh, or is it not Australian? Is it um, Pontypool? Um, no, I, I haven't heard of it. What country is that from? I'm going to, I'm. Pontypool I'm, is a great movie. Yeah. Stuff, uh, r- radio movies would be fantastic. That Alan Partridge movie. Uh, all kinds of good. Anyway, but Pont- yes, to your point, jur- journalism movies, um, it, it is, it is a, a, a 2000, it's, it says, what, what country is this bad? Oh, it's Ontario. It's in Canada. Um, Canada. Okay. Ca- Canadian Pontypool. Um, but look, yeah, look, thank you so much for being a part of the show. It's been an absolute treat. These guys who are listening can find you obviously on screen drafts, but please spruik everything that you do with videos, with screen drafts, tell people where they can find you. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, on on social media, I'm just at Clay Keller. Um, the show is Screen Drafts, where we have uh, two people, uh, what we say, competitively collaborate uh, in making a best of list from a given a given topic. We don't use the word draft the way it's meant to be used, so don't <laughs> let that confuse you. Uh, but it's two people alternating turns. Com- collaboratively building a best of list. Each of them has a veto. There's some gameplay. There's some strategy. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a good time. Uh, and then I also host uh, Vidiot's Trivia, which has moved from its physical space in Los Angeles uh, online. Um, the actual nonprofit organization, Screening Room Archive, is going to be doing the opposite thing after COVID is, is over and going from the, you know, kind of ephemeral space back into a brick and mortar location in Los Angeles. Um, but the trivia, which we do on Zoom, um, is a really, really good time. Um, 
uh, we do it the last Sunday of every month. So the next one coming up is going to be at the end of August, but you can follow Vidiots at Vidiots um, to get updates on how that works. Um, just you want to play some some fun online Zoom movie trivia. It's 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 a challenge, but not uh, in an unfun way. We make it as challenging as possible while still being fun. Is, while still being fun. How we like to describe it. And uh, and am I right to preview in what people will be able to listen to, which is part two of the Westerns uh, of the Western. That's a hundred percent correct. Yes. So, um, and, and am I right in being able to preview that Billy Ray, a, a mutual friend of ours from our cinephile game night, uh, has makes two people walk out of the, of the, of the episode midway through. Yes. Yeah. So the, 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 the tease for this is this is part two of a trilogy of what we call mini mega drafts. So we're instead of seven, we're doing 13 from each, about 30 year period. Uh, this middle one is going to cover 1964 to 1992 by US release date. Uh, and the, the drafters are Billy Ray Bruden um, of Scripps Gone Wild, uh, who we met on uh, You Met on Cinephile Game Night, um, Darren Franich, who is a critic for Entertainment Weekly, uh, and then my usual co host on Screen Drafts, Ryan Marker. Um, and then it's guest co hosted by Game of Thrones producer Brian Cogman, who's another um, frequent guest on the show. And yes, um, fairly high up on the list, I will say, <laughs> coming in at about midnight by when we were re- recording it, Billy Ray puts a pick on the list that um, that made Brian and Darren uh, in unison remove their headphones and leave the room. <laughs> that is, uh, so it is... It is not without drama. Well, this has been a a dramatic episode of all the president's minutes. It's been a treat to talk yes. to you. Thank you so much for being a part of it. And, uh, and I'm, I'm personally looking forward to, uh, that moment because there's nothing, uh, more fun than people getting infuriated with each other and being powerless to hit the other person in the room and just having to abandon their headphones and walk away. I love it. Thanks Clay for being part of the show. Thank you. Blake. That was the great Clay Keller, who you can find on Twitter at C-L-A-Y-K-E-L-L-E-R. He's the host of Screen Drafts. The links to the show are in the description of the podcast. Thank you so much for listening again to all the President's Minutes. I have been your host, Blake Howard. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can find me uh, on at one Blake Minute, also at one Blake Minute on Instagram. If you guys want to follow the show at ATPM Pod on Twitter as well. One Heat Minute is the best website to find us. Mail at One Heat Minute if you want to reach out to us or you want to get in touch, Twitter or ATPM Pod, whichever one um, would be wonderful. Thank you so much for supporting One Heat Minute Productions, Increment Vice, Miami Nice, lots of cool stuff happening with both of those podcasts coming up. Um, Obviously, all the President's Minutes, but... Really, if you want to support us, Patreon forward slash One Heat Minute. We are doing a weekly podcast. I'm going flying solo, sometimes with a partner. Rum and Rant. The only place you can find it is on Patreon. And you have to be a subscriber. Five bucks a month, you support all of our shows and get a bonus episode of a podcast, of of one of our shows every single week. Thanks for listening. Great episodes coming this week. Can't wait to chat to you soon.